Hi, everyone. It's Arlen. Welcome back to your first million podcast. This is a jam-packed episode. Cannot wait for you to hear it. Um, Press play. Do some work around the house. Lay down. Take that well-earned break. um, Go on that well-earned COVID-safe drive. Or share it with your friends. This is gonna be this is gonna be very very uh, jam packed with information. Let me let me tell you what's going on. So it's gonna be split into a couple of parts. The first part is me airing the first five minutes of the audio version of my new book. It's about damn time. So this is what you would hear if you were to purchase the book on audio. It's available on audio on uh, Audible, through Amazon, through Google, through Apple. Apple Books just called it a must-read, and it's featuring it right now uh, on its front page, which is crazy. It's available at certain libraries um, on on their websites. It's available in a lot of different places where you get your audio books. So do a search. Go to itsaboutdamntime.com. If you haven't been able to find it on audio, and it'll lead you right there. Also available all over the world right now. So um, if you haven't been able to find it, just go to the website and it'll help you link to it. So that's the first part, which will be a five-minute preview of the very first part of that book to let you know what you're getting into. If you want, if you want to go and buy the rest of it, or if you want to buy a hard copy version or an ebook of it. Um, and I uh, hope you hope you enjoy that. I had a great time recording it. I recorded it at a studio in Austin called Arlen Studios, spelled A-R-L-Y-N. My name is spelled A-R-L-A-N. But I saw that name of the studio on Brene Brown's Insta story a few weeks ago, a few months ago. And I was like, I can't believe that exists. And it's, it has my name, sort of. <laughs> and it's in Austin, and it's a recording studio. So I asked uh, the publisher, Penguin, I said, can I please, um, the U.S. publisher, Penguin, I said, can I please, please record the, the audio version at the studio? And instead of in Los Angeles, which is what, what the plan was. And they were super cool about it. They said, of course, let's set it up. So we set it up. Everyone in Arlen Studio was amazing, and um, I'm just so grateful for the entire experience. So I had a great time recording it. Hope you enjoy uh, listening to it. If you have the hard copy already, some people are buying the audio version just to kind of have that if they like the the podcast to hear me speak it, to perform it, you know. Um, the second part, and huge, huge, huge part uh, of the rest of the podcast episode, is my exclusive interview with the singer, chef, entrepreneur, farm owner, etc., etc., Kelis, 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 I've been listening to her music for two decades now, and um, this was so much fun to do. We did this one live. We don't really do these episodes live that are meant for the podcast. So you might have heard Minda Hart's episode recently, and it was live, pardon, it was live, but it was not necessarily meant for your first million. I just wanted you to have the live version. This was specifically, we were going to do the interview, and I said, hey, let's do it in front of a few of your fans, a few of people who follow what I'm up to, and so we can have like this intimate kind of um, 
uh, audience that's like giving us questions and also reacting and she was totally down for it and i'm just so grateful i can't even believe i know Kalise. like this is ridiculous <laughs> like life is weird right now but um she has those hits you know uh that uh, uh, caught out there, I hate you so much right now. You know what I mean? You know you were singing that back in the day. Um, she has, I mean, I think she's most, no, well, she has, you know, uh, I Got Your Money uh, with uh, with uh, as a duet. And then, of course, everybody knows Milkshake because her milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. You got to know that. So she has those hits and more. She has all sorts of art that she's produced over the last two decades, what I love about this interview is that it's like, because it's live, it's like, it's, it has a life of its own. I love that. Um, it's also, I was so surprised by so much that she said. I had no idea I was going to walk away with the information and the inspiration that I did. It was so, so good. Everybody in the room who was with us, everybody who was on camera, we were all just like, what did we just witness? That was amazing. So you're going to enjoy this. I decided to post the entire um the entire part instead of like editing out the beginning where we're kind of just getting into the room and just figuring things out because I wanted you to feel like you were there if you missed it and I think you'll start to feel like you're like part of it if if you get all the intro the first few minutes of the intro and then when Khalees comes in you'll also notice a familiar voice Janine Janine was a guest on the show uh, on Your First Million just a few episodes ago. She's a singer, songwriter, producer, originally from New Zealand, lives in Los Angeles now. I used to be her tour manager. She's, um, if you don't know Janine, I mean, go right now. Go to Instagram right now, at J-A-N-I-N-E, Janine. Listen to any song. Listen to her live music that she put out recently in an Insta uh, um, TV uh, version. Uh, I can't, I, you know, I can't, I'll go on and on about Janine, but I'm not going to do that here. Just go listen to the old uh, episode that we just put up or, you know, not old, but the episode we put up a few weeks ago. So she's actually in this episode asking Khalees a couple of questions because I thought it would be so interesting to see the two of them talk to each other and ha and she could give a different perspective than I could. So wait until you hear what Khalees says to Janine in this episode and when she was sending it to Janine, I was having, I was pretending she was saying it to me. <laughs> like when she called Janine an artist, I was like, you are an artist, Arlen. <laughs> That's why people don't, not everybody gets you. <laughs> so I think you're going to relate the whole time. All right. I've said enough. I've set this up enough. Uh, as you can probably tell, I am stoked. This week has been more than I could have ever hoped for or imagined. I appreciate every single person who has picked up this book already and who is reading it and sharing it and passing it on to their friends. Word of mouth is the best way to get um, more people to know about the book. I can't do enough promotion. I couldn't, you couldn't even pay for promotion that's as valuable as word of mouth promotion. So your telling people about it has been everything. And I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Let's keep this going. And um, it's all about us all getting there together. That's what every bit of this is. All of my content, podcast, online course, the book, Backstage Capital to begin with, all of it is about all of us getting there together. So without further ado, because I've been a doing for a while, let's go. Let's get into the episode.
Penguin Random House Audio presents It's About Damn Time. How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage by Arlen Hamilton with Rachel L. Nelson. This is the author, Arlen Hamilton. To my mother, Mrs. Erlene Butler Sims, The Real San Sebastian. Introduction From Food Stamps to Fast Company Ascending an escalator in a hotel I couldn't afford to stay in, I said to myself, You are a venture capitalist. You are a venture capitalist. I had no home, no money, certainly no investment capital. Yet I knew that was what I needed to say to myself. In order to become, I needed to be. I was sleeping on the floor of the San Francisco airport nearby. I came to this hotel to get a change of scenery and stay until they kicked me out. Then it would be back to the airport with my suitcase and backpack, back to the hard floor down from the virgin check-in desk, rolled up jeans under my head for a pillow. I told myself, you are a venture capitalist, as I checked my emails on the airport's free Wi-Fi, as I avoided the security people on their segways, as I sent out yet another email asking for funding. I was still spending days and nights at the airport when I wrote my blog post, Dear White Venture Capitalists, if you're reading this, it's almost too late, which went viral in a matter of hours, but still left me with no investors. It's been nearly five years since then, and now it's not just my staunch self-belief telling me I'm a venture capitalist. I literally am the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital, a multi-million dollar investment fund. I've invested in 130 plus startups with founders who are underestimated in the same way as I was. Founders who identify as people of color, women, LGBTQ, or if they're as lucky as I am, all three. In October 2018, I was the first black female non-celebrity to grace the cover of Fast Company magazine. In 2012, before I had even heard of the investment asset class called venture capital, before I was sharing hotel rooms with my mom, before I was homeless and sleeping in airports, in Airbnbs and on friends' couches, I was a budding production coordinator in the live music industry, working for artists such as CeeLo Green, Jason Derulo, and Tony Braxton. I'd been at that level for just over a year when I started noticing that the successful people I looked up to, such as Ellen DeGeneres, Ashton Kutcher, and Troy Carter, Lady Gaga's manager at the time, were getting involved financially in the tech startup scene. I wondered why those successful people with exciting lives and careers were spending so much time in a place called Silicon Valley, making bets on tiny companies no one had ever heard of. I was intrigued by what the draw could be, so I started doing what I always do when I'm curious about something. I dived in, asking questions and researching. After that, I started reading books, any and all that I could get my hands on, about startups, venture capitalism, and investing. I had the bug. From the outside, the world of startups, venture capital, angel investors, and limited partners, the institutions and individuals who invest in venture funds, looked like a meritocracy. That was what attracted me to it, and I'm sure it's what attracts a lot of people. The narrative around successful startups always seems to follow a pattern of rags to riches. You hustle, grind, pull all-nighters, give your best every day, and finally, success arrives. 
As someone who has always been vision-focused, who has always had big ideas and small resources, I became obsessed with this industry. I wanted to know everything about it, and so I followed the money trail and taught myself everything there was to know. Along the way, I learned some disappointing statistics. For one thing, 90% of venture funding was going to white men. That's a huge amount of money, given that tens of billions of dollars are deployed in venture investments each year. It means that 10% of venture capital is split unequally among all of the other types of people in society. As a black gay woman who had been excited to enter the exciting world of innovation as an entrepreneur, I was more than disappointed to discover that something that had been sold to me as a meritocracy was actually a microcosm of the worst of society's biases. I knew when I saw those statistics that the mythology around Silicon Valley was basically a lie because ingenuity, hard work, hustle, Grit and innovation aren't traits that are prevalent only in the straight white male population. We're going to start in just a couple of minutes here. We'll have everybody join us. See people coming in. All right, all right, all right. We'll start in just a second. As we get everybody coming in, we uh, we have a special guest just for a second here um, to start us off and then uh, participate in this. You're here to see Khalees get interviewed for your first million podcast. You may notice, uh, let me see, you'll see it when I, I throw over to you. So we'll have Janine. What's up? Hi. This is so awesome. Technology. <laughs> Technology. Okay, so what we'll do to kind of kick things off while we um, let everybody in the room, everybody gets settled. Chacho, do you want to pop in and, and introduce yourself and let everybody know what your role here is going to be? Absolutely. Today. I'm Chacho Valdez. I work very closely with Arlen as her apprentice and chief of staff, and I'll be moderating the chat and what would be helpful is if you have any questions to um, put them in the Q&A section in the middle of the screen. Um, please don't put any questions in the chat instead in the Q&A section so that way we can have them all aggregated there. And um, I'll be also dropping links um, as Arlen requests as well. And I think that's it. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, you all feel free to talk to each other in the chat say let's say where everybody's from everybody put your city where you're from and um we will get started in just a second as people come in we'll start shouting people out and uh let's see let me i'm gonna write to you chacho if i can make that happen real quick i see mrs sims is in the building my mother is here okay Okay, okay. We're if you're just joining us, we're we're just gonna get started in just a second. We're from Los Angeles, Atlanta, Charlotte, New Jersey, uh, Chicago. What's up, Jess and Diane? Yes, 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 yes. 
Mrs. Sims is here. Someone's from Dubai. Someone's from Houston, Carson, California, Brooklyn, Manchester. All right. So Janine, um, if uh, your first million podcast is where I interview a lot of people from all backgrounds, successful people, people have been through things, uh, talented people. And Janine was one of the episodes. Uh, so if you haven't heard that yet, definitely write down that you want to go check out Janine's episode. Janine, can you just tell us just a little bit about yourself uh, so we can kick this off? Yeah. So my name is <clears throat> Janine. I am a singer, songwriter, and producer. And I am originally from New Zealand, and now I'm in the States. And Arlen was my first ever tour manager. So I'm pretty much the luckiest person in the entire world. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. This, is su- this has been such a trippy week. Um, you know, just kind of like memory lane, all kinds of stuff going on. Um, Chach, I'm going to ask that you go offline and, and try to talk about our guest, please, and, and, and make sure that that's being taken care of. Um, it's just such a, it's such a trip, right? And you read the, you read the book. Yeah, and I'm not quite finished yet, but I... It's you just, read part of the book. But yes. Yeah, but it's... I mean, it's, I love the book. Like, I showed you, I have so many notes and, like, things that I love about it. That, and it's super inspirational. It's entertaining. It's, it's really, really special. And I just remember having that conversation with you in a little Sprinter van and you kind of explaining that you want to do this. And at the time, I know you were, you know, financially struggling. Like, you were just trying to get it all together. And now... It's just been this amazing thing from you taking, you know, the photos with my lineup of an audience to going to events and watching you have lines of people that want to have their photo taken with you. It's just such an amazing, you know, thing to have witnessed. I'm very grateful yeah. to have witnessed it. Thank you so, so much. And uh, yeah, we, we check out that episode, y'all. The episode with Janine was fire. It was amazing. And we now have uh, the guest of the hour here. Hey, Miss Khalees. Hi, how are you? <laughs> how are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you. Um, how are you? I am doing pretty well. It's, it's, it's been a, we were just talking about it. It's been a week. It's been a re- really interesting week, an exciting yeah. week. And it's, I, I don't know any better way to top this week than to have this conversation with you right now. Nice. Um, <laughs> I mean, to just, it's such a trip. I can't tell you. I used to, I told you this, I used to listen to your music to get me through a graveyard shift. Crazy. So a, a data entry <laughs> graveyard shift. Because it was, you know what? It felt like, I don't know if this is going to sound weird, but it felt like the black girl version of Alanis Morissette to me. It was our permission to yell and be angsty and to, to have emotion and that be okay. Does that, does that make sense? Or should I be No, it's funny. I have never heard it that way or said it that way, but it's, that's a really good... Um, I'm always saying I don't feel like I have to apologize for feeling justifiable anger. I'm like, yes, <laughs> <I think> okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, that's that's actually really cool. I was a huge Alanis Morissette fan, anyway. So, that um, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> that's awesome. So, we're we have a an intimate audience here. Um, thanks everybody. Everybody's from all over the place. You got somebody from Dubai in here. You got people from New York, Atlanta, San Diego, Philadelphia, Miami. Um, I just wanted to have a chat with you for the podcast and um, kind of go through a, a few things because you've also been a bit of an anomaly 
um, you know, in this, in this industry, because it's just, you can't pin down your career. Your career has just spanned so many years, so many genres, so many types of things. I mean, I list, I had to, I had to like stop listing your titles on the description <laughs> of this, you know, and, and I just, I want to get into that, but um, to start off, let's just say for anybody who doesn't know, where, where did you first grow, like, where did you grow up in, and what was that entrance into music for you? Um, I grew up in Harlem, New York. I'm a New Yorker to the core. Um, I grew up, like, on 128th Street, right above 125th, and so I was always just, like, on the block, and, you know, um, I think that had a, first and foremost, I think being in New York, first of all, had a huge influence on my just creativity in general. Um, I think being from Harlem, that was just like an added layer as a black woman and just being in New York in the 90s, like it was a real, like, really important time, I think. Um, and so for me, just growing up, you know, my dad was a jazz musician. So I grew up with music around me all the time and very black music on top of that so I grew up in church I grew up with jazz so like they were that, that's like black classical music so it's American classical music really so I grew up um with all of that and so that was a huge that was like my my it was my foundation really it was kind of like how I heard everything through that through those ears always and I still do I think yeah um I mean New York in the 90s was incredible it was rebellious by nature um it was culturally loud and prominent it was making noise in ways that we could have never like we didn't i didn't know that this is what it was going to be you know um i don't know if anyone really did and it, it definitely it laid the foundation for my entire like thought process and life creativity and kind of everything that like how i operate now was your was your intention always to have a a career that was mainstream quote unquote was it always to be out in front or I mean not at all like the complete opposite actually I grew up like I said my dad being a jazz musician I grew up around some of the most talented people I've ever seen and who never made a dollar you know like it was a different thing you know especially because like my dad came up in an era where like especially like black artists weren't making the money anyway so mm -hmm. like they did it because they loved it they did it because they couldn't do nothing else they did it because they had to like it was a diff completely different thing so it wasn't even in my it's funny, like I talk to, you know, young people now and because they, you know, we have all these opportunities and we see all these things, it's, it kind of skews the art in a way. Whereas back then, I, it wasn't even, it wasn't like I didn't dream big. I just wasn't even a thought. It was like, if right. I could play, you know, at a club in downtown, like, and someone would listen, I was like, great, like, this is dope. Like I was, it was enough, you know, and that would have been an accomplishment. I would have felt good about that. And I think that's, like I said, watching some of the most talented people money was never the drive it was kind of just like them creating and expanding this art and it breathing through them so like that it was never even a thought I was I'm still shocked sometimes that I, I haven't had a real since it wasn't something you were chasing how 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 did it happen how did that first wave of that notoriety and to get you on a label for instance or to get your album out how did that first happen um, I signed my first deal when I was around 17. I was 17 or just turning 18, I was like somewhere in that age. Um, and before that though, I went to LaGuardia. So I went to the fame school um, mm. and I was a drama major. 
my goal was to be on Broadway. I wanted to do like live stuff. So that's how I started. And I was just kind of like the girl in the drama department who could sing. And so I was started writing like all music and kind of putting together these ensembles for our plays. And then I was doing like, I had a, I don't even remember, some of my friends, I don't know what majors they were in. Some of them were drama, but some of them were music. And we started a girl group. Um, and so like we would have these, you know, LaGuardia had these talent shows that were like real, ta- like real deal. Like it wasn't like a regular high school. These were like really talented people, you know, putting on these talent shows. And so we would do these talent shows and just like play around and, you know, ridiculous. Like we named ourselves Blue, it was Black Ladies United. And, you know, we would just like sing, like we, we loved SWV and like, we yes. loved- you know what I mean? Is there a recording somewhere? Is there, there has to be a recording somewhere. I have to hear. Uh, probably. I mean, I'm sure I, I definitely wouldn't be searching for it because I can't imagine that it's that great. But like there was, there, it was that, you know, and so that's how I started. So I was about 15 and a friend of mine from another school had heard that, you know, she was just like, yo, you're still, you're singing like that's dope. I know these guys you should check. They're weird. Like you, they're kind of doing something different. <laughs> Literally. They were like, just, she's like, you should meet them. I was like, all right. So I had already done, like, again, because New York at that time was a very different city. So, like, if you were doing music and you were Black, there wasn't that many of us. So we all kind of knew each other. And even though I was only 15, I was like, oh, that's the, the little girl who comes in the studio with Mad Lady. So like, like, that. It was very, like, so I had done some stuff with Grave Diggers. I was doing some stuff, like, just kind of hanging around with, like, Wu-Tang guys, like, wanting to get on hooks and, like, that kind of thing. Um, and then they were like, yo, there's this, there's this girl who raps and there are these guys who are producing. You should meet them because they're doing some kind of off stuff like you like and you should kind of see what they're about. And so like, I don't even remember what stairwell it was, but I was in a stairwell and I remember Pharrell and Rob were like, can you sing? Mm. I was like, yeah, I can sing. And I sang and they were like, great. Like, we, let's, yeah, let's do this. I was like, I don't know what this is, but okay. And kind of like, from that point on, um, it all sort of like it happened, it seemed like it happened really fast because by the time I graduated from high school, um, we were signing a deal with Virgin. Mm. And I, I, I want to make sure that uh, Janine um, asked a couple questions because from that artist to artist point of view. Before, before that, I want to know, how do, you, how do you stay what I feel is at least grounded in, in, in a personal way, like in an emotional way. How do you stay grounded when you start off that early out into, like, how do you know how to treat people? How do you know that? If That's you're, something you learn though, honestly, mm-hmm. I think like it did happen quickly and you're thrown into this thing that really, to be fair, no one really should ever be thrown in, if I'm being honest. Like, I yes. think like it's, too much, too fast, too soon. And it's everything about it is inherently not human. Like it's just, it's just, it's, it's hard. And so you end up, there's two ways. I always say this, there's two ways to go. Either you completely delve in and you spiral and it's like, hopefully someone catches you, you catch yourself, whatever, or you are a recluse a bit, which ironically I sort of am in a weird way. So I ended up like shutting down. (laughs) So it was like, that's, I think how I was able to like, look around enough outside of myself to be like, okay, this is odd. This doesn't seem right. Is this normal? Hold on. I need to gain some, like, I need to like put my feet down. And so I think for me, because I was alone so much, because literally like I signed at 17 
um, Caught Out There came out shortly after for my first record. I was on tour for three years after that. Mm. I was by myself though. It's like, you have a band, but these are not your friends. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a girl from Harlem. Like, I don't know these people. I was in Europe. So you end up alone a lot. So you're able to sort of see people from a different perspective and- Like observing them more so yeah, than anything. Observing how they treat you, observing how you're, everything. It's like, it's a totally different thing. You become this like, like I said, it can go one of two ways. I think I made a choice early on also, like, my parents were not trying to hear it. My mom was not playing. She was like, you know, <laughs> you better act right. <laughs> like, and even though I wasn't necessarily acting right, I always had that grounding to be like, if I want to go home and say hi to my mother, I'm going to need to act like I know where I come from because she's not playing. So I think that was definitely helpful. But you learn about yourself really quickly and you learn about people um, because this does change. This has the potential to change you in many, many, many ways. And so I think you have to it's a decision. It's a decision. I think everything we do is a decision. I think people allow too many things to just happen to them. And so while this was happening, I was making decisions to like who I saw in the mirror and to be like, okay, I want to be comfortable. I want to be happy. This is all unnatural. You know, it is, and it is unnatural. Like I, so back then I used to smoke a lot too. Cause I was just like, this is too much. These people are in my face too much. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like being put on blast. So it was a lot of that, like just sort of self-governing and figuring out, you know, at 18, 19, like, okay, this is crazy. These people are crazy. <laughs> this is all too yes. crazy. <laughs> it's, I mean, to, to, it's one thing to be, to have surreal moments after you know what's being, what surreal is. But I've always wondered about people who, who are children when they start, essentially, you know, because you're 17, that's a child. It is. You know? I moved out the year before, so I moved out early. I think everything, again, because I've watched my parents, growing up in New York, I think prepares at that time, it prepared you in a way differently than maybe any other time, any other place, for sure. You know, from one of my best friends used to do nails with a Mart 125. So we'd be on 125th Street and it would be like, you know, dudes like on bikes from Rough Riders would come out and like Diddy and like Mace were outside. It was like, everybody was always outside. It was like, <laughs> it was always just, ha I mean, it was really crazy. Like it was, cause we were all Harlem. It was either Bronx and Harlem. Like that's where we hung out. Yeah best food like it was just it was a cultural epicenter whether we knew to call it that or not at the time that's what it was so I think we were all too young right so you saw this you saw there were ways to go there were ways not to go and then all of a sudden it's like okay now your turn you go do it and so I think like I had seen I had seen a level of success before even though it wasn't from like my family I saw it I saw this sort of thing happening and I kind of I think I just had to quickly maneuver. And, and yeah, I made some bad choices and I made some mistakes and I learned the hard way. But I think ultimately, you know, having that time by myself where I was able to kind of like watch people and watch what I didn't like and trying to keep the things about myself that I felt were important. I think that was a huge part of kind of like how I grew up because I grew up in this. Mm. That's wonderful self-reflection that you had early. And I'm grateful that you had that early. Um, Janine... <laughs> So Janine is, before you were coming, I don't know if you caught this, but I, I used to be Janine's tour manager. Janine is an amazing artist out of New Zealand, but lives in Los Angeles now. Um, and it was on your first million a few episodes ago. Uh, Janine, I, I would love for you two to talk a little bit about, from that artist's uh, perspective. I know you had a couple of questions, uh, but you are on mute as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, it's all good. It's all good. Hey, how are you doing? 
Hi, how are you? Oh, it's frozen. Is it frozen? Hold on a second, Janine. We're gonna we're gonna check on you in a second because I think it's frozen. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, is it back? Yeah, it's better. Okay, this is great timing for my internet to mess up. Um, <laughs> we get the, we're gonna edit. We're gonna edit the the podcast episode itself. So this is it. This is what, how the sausage is made behind the scenes. It's all good. <laughs> right. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a I'm a big fan. I love your music. Um, when I was, you were one of my first on one of my first CDs I bought. There was a a CD. It was called it was called What's Up. It was like street moves and body grooves. Uh, New Zealand. And now. I would listen to. That's, like, that's, that? that's New Zealand popping off. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, but it was funny because like, so I would listen to, I loved it. It had um, caught out there and I would listen to it in my headphones because my parents weren't cool with me, like listening to the music I was listening to. It was, I like, I loved it. It was such a great outlet and it had a, it was you, it had NWA and it was just such an amazing artistic CD. And it was, I was so grateful that I got to hear you that way. And well, it was really cool because I saw that and then um and then obviously later on you came out and you had Tasty and you had all those hits on that CD so I had my question really was uh, because I'm so I was signed to Atlantic dropped like a year ago so I was going through my first transition of you know being sold the dream to having nothing happen and being you know going through that but also it's a different time so to be honest I was pretty excited about being dropped but for you, obviously, I've seen you go from, you know, caught out there and then you, I, you transitioned and left them. And then you came back and you came back even bigger and stronger and just like blew everyone out of the water. So I was really interested in your journey from like your first, I guess, being signed to leaving that to coming back and how you kind of what that journey was like for you. Well, it's crazy. I mean, I can definitely relate to like the label situation. I've been on like, how many labels have I been on? Um, I'm like, wait, <laughs> I've been on bad labels. I was on Virgin first and then Virgin went through their whole, like they fired a gang of people and they wanted me to change my album. And I was just like, that's ridiculous. So then I left. And then I was on Arista and then that whole thing was a disaster. And so they, closed everything they kind of like shut everything down ellie reed it was a whole thing and then i was on jive which was even a bigger disaster if you could believe and then, <laughs> oh i've been on four labels now i think right yes four labels now because then after i was on ninja tune so it's always so the thing is you know it's hard because you're at there's this one side where you're an artist and you're like you know you want to be precious about it and you want to hold it dear and you know treat it like this baby and then on the other note, you're like, well, this is how I eat, right? And then on the, the other side of that, there's, there's, you're kind of, you're held sort of hostage to this business idea that really like, you know, you learn by default, you know, and that becomes really, um, it can make you crazy because it's like, you could have the most beautiful album ever. And if they don't get it, if they don't like it, if something happens, you know, in the like, the realms, you know, in the world where everything, you know, yeah. it's kind of like, you're always sort of like, you don't have the control that you would like to have. And so that's a really hard thing to kind of, I think, balance that in the midst of being creative and trying to be creative and trying to be true to yourself and all of that. Um, 
You know what, honestly, though, like, I, I feel like, for me, the, the thread that sort of like carried me through throughout the past 20 years has really just been, it's that bubble, honestly. I mean, it sounds crazy, but like, like I said, I think I learned early on to find my creativity in me instead of like listening to stuff that was outside. So I kind of did that across the board. And so when everything fell apart and everything kept falling apart, my source always came from either, you know, my faith or myself, my creativity. It was never like, my friends to this day tease me, like, you have no idea what's happening in the world. And I really, <laughs> I really don't just because like, I can't, cause it's like, I know that it's, I'm sensitive and like, it's going to affect me in ways that I can't control. And I know what I can control. I know what I can take. And so in the midst of all of those sort of like labels falling apart and a is not liking this and all these things happening, I was never really looking to them for answers anyway. And I learned that mm. early so that I think I was always able to sort of like pick myself back up. And there was a lot of picking up. I mean, like, you know, like, like I said, from one label, you know, being dropped or this happening or this person getting fired, like it was, you know, never having any control over it. It can make you crazy. Like you can really feel helpless. Um, but I think I learned to, I had to learn, you know, based on the circumstances to kind of just keep pushing, you know, and keep picking myself back up and saying, this is nothing, this is not, it's not personal. I don't, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not personal. It's a business. And even though that's not how I started thinking about it, that's how I ended up thinking about it. So that for me now, I'm like, my art is my art and the business is a the business. They're two very different things. And I have to be able to juggle that in order to survive in this, even to this day. It sucks. I love that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. No, but it, it's, it, I love it. It makes, it makes total sense. I mean, for me personally, with everything I was doing independently from writing to producing and putting out my own music was working. And then the label didn't. And then since I've been independent and putting my stuff out myself and still doing my own production, it's, and got back to my roots, it's soaring again. So it's great to know that, like, for me, I definitely lost myself in the process of trying to you know wanting that next step and not and not knowing if I should but also being like such an artist is you know I think that I was torn into two different places where what I love about you is you've always seemed like very like very self-aware very strong and being able to to know what you want and never let go of that and I think seeing that and but it's but don't get me wrong it's to my detriment sometimes and you have to acknowledge that about yourself like sometimes I'm like for sure like you know, you have to, that's the difference between business and like creativity. They don't really go together, but yet they have to. And so it's like, you look at like, yeah, there's been times when I've been like, no, this is what I want. This is what it sounds like. That's what you don't like it. Then I ain't for you. Like, that's it. But I like my mortgage being paid and <laughs> I like food and I like electricity. So, you know, it's like, you're like, okay. Like, and so you kind of, you know, you do, you find where you're, it is, like I said, it has definitely been to my detriment to some points, but again, you have to decide what kind of artist you want to be, I think, early on. And I figured out early on that I was never going to be a pop star. I'm not that bubbly. I don't, I'm not that pliable. Like, I just, this is not who I am. So, like, I understood that there was a certain sacrifice that was going to come with that. You know, and so I love the, that, though, because you have to. You made the hits. Like, you made those pop star hits your way like you know obviously you had put out there then you had milkshake yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean milkshake <laughs> milkshake yeah. is a pop song but it's a it's a feminist song but it is now and that's the that's the iron here's what's so funny about that and honestly like i've always said that like people don't you know like you, you're talking about backstories right like people don't have any idea 
to this day, like I'm 40 years old right now, and that record came out in 2004, and people are like, oh, are you annoyed that like Milkshake is like, you know, it's the song you're known for? I fought for that song like nobody's, it took me two years to break that song. Every radio station told me no. Everybody was like, what is that shit? It's terrible. Like it literally, I fought tooth and nail for that song because I believed in it. I knew what it represented for people like me. It was important, but it wasn't because it was like a pop song when it started. It was trash. No one wanted to play it. Nobody liked it. <laughs> That's why it's, it's like, everyone's like, oh, you're known for the song. I'm like, can you believe that like, what I had to do to get that song played. Like I fought tooth and nail. I got door slammed in my face constantly. People were constantly like, that's whack. <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> Every day to the point where it's just like one, I don't even know, it was like one day, someone was like, yo, that song. And I was like, what song? <laughs> you know, cause it, I'd been fighting for so long to get it, to get it to people where, where people understood why I did it. It wasn't about like being the best singer in the world or like, I'm never gonna be, I know what I am, right? It was about like, not wanting to constantly be like whining. And it was about changing the rhythm a little bit and changing the beat and bringing it back to like how I started. And I think that it never comes easily, but you have to decide then what kind of artist you want to be because were there easier songs I could have done? Hell yeah, I all the time, you know? Like there's definitely been an easier path. But like at 40 now I can look back at my career and whether I decide to do another album or not, I don't feel like I played myself. I think that's, as an artist, for me, like the kind of person that I am, that's the biggest goal. And people are always like, oh, well, you know, you could have made more money and you could have done this. And I'm like, I'm good. Like, yeah, there's an integrity. What, meant, what mattered for me. And I think that's sort of, that's the decision that you make. You have that choice in that kind of like first five years of your career to kind of decide, am I a performer? Am I an artist? Am I a singer? Those are very different things. You know, and I love that your gut was right. Like I, for me, every decision that I made based on my gut and I fought for has worked. And all the ones that I bended on, like that I was like, oh, well, you know, I'll, you're the bigger people. Even though I felt this wasn't right. Like the songs that I was like, this is going to be the top song. And they're like, no, we're going to push this one. And then the other one ended up being the top song anyway. Well, that's the difference but we didn't artist. You're an artist then. Like that's, you just defined yourself, you know? And that's sort of the difference between like, there are fantastic singers who will never be artists. There are phenomenal performers who will never be artists. And the word artist gets thrown around as lightly as the word love or any, you know, or hate. But the reality is there's not that many of us. And it's the ones where it's like, my gut is saying, this is what it needs to be because I have something to say, whether it's right or wrong. People have hated some of the stuff that my gut said was right. <laughs> you know, like, and they still hate it. They're like, nope, still hate it. <laughs> I'm like, that's who I am and this is what I care about. And so, it doesn't matter if I'm the best singer in the world. You know, you think about the artists that like, like think Alanis Morissette, like we were talking about, she's not the greatest singer in the world. Neither is Nina Simone, neither is Kurt Cobain, but they stick with you forever. And that's the difference I think. And that's where like, you know, we talk about like longevity. That's why I can talk 20 years later and I can be as whatever I want to be. Cause like 20 years later, there's tons of chicks who sing way better than me who we don't know their names and we never will cause they came and went, right? So I think that's sort of like, you kind of define yourself and that's, that's, that is the difference. You'll take that to the grave and you'll be able to look at your kids with some dignity and some respect because you know who the hell you are. You know what I'm saying? I think that to me is like, that's where the value is. Yeah, I could listen I to y'all talk to each other all day. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this is behind the scenes. I know my dad, I was like, I'll ask one question and I'll leave you guys. No, I love it. it. I love it. I, I definitely <laughs> want to make sure that we're, we're true to, to the title of this podcast just for a moment. 
and because this is all, it's all related because you mentioned business, it's, it's business, right? Yeah. The business side of it, the mortgage side of it, um, the, how, how, what is your relationship like with money? Like, you know, I've, I've talked about my relationship with money, how it's evolved over time and how having it at arm's length and not being emotional about it has made me make the most money I ever have. Uh, used to fear it, used to hate it, used to have all these emotional attachments to it, never loved it, but all these emotional things, and I was broke, 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 broke. So have you noticed that the way you think about money and, the, and, and having it and not having it and all of that, what changes and what doesn't? I mean, the obvious stuff is kind of like, you know, the level of comfort and kind of like what you're able to it's, it allows you, it's funny, the irony about it is that on one level, it allows you to be comfortable, right? Kind of in your physical, sort of like the obvious stuff. On the flip side, though, it can be the one thing that holds you back. Mm. You know, so I do know that like, there were definitely times in my life where I had to check myself because I was making such good money that it puts fear in your heart. And you're kind of like, what if this next thing ruins it all, you know? But again, because I've always, I'm always constantly checking myself, then you kind of, you just put, you're like, okay, well then, hey, we got, then we got to have to make it again. It is what it is, you know? And so you kind of like, um, I've always been that way. I think because the money started to flow pretty easily that I didn't pay attention to it until pretty much like halfway into my career. It was probably like, when I decided to take a break and go to culinary school, that's when I really was like, oh shit, I was making a lot of money. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, hold up. <laughs> and this is free. I'm in school. There's nobody. You know, so it wasn't, I was, you become kind of, um, yeah, your relationship, my relationship with money was, I don't want to say ungrateful, but because I started making it so early, um, it wasn't until I started to mature a bit and really understand, like, that I was, why all these things were happening, that I was, I became something that was a commodity. I became something that was traded and that was sold and that was, and not in a negative way, but in a way that I started, that I wanted, that I started to understand that so I could look at myself in the proper way so that I could handle my business the way that I needed to handle it. Mm. Um, but I had to grow up. And so it probably was about 10 years in that I was like, huh, okay. And I started to really understand, and I don't mean this in like an ethereal, like, you know, black excellence way. I mean, this in like a real like business way. Like I under, I started to understand my worth and what it was and why. And I think that's a really, um, that was really profound for me because then I was able to kind of wield and deal the way that it had been done for me in the past, you know? And so I think that kind of changed everything for me. And that, with that control and that awareness, it sounded like it was an awareness yeah. that you had um, you can now have more control over how it's made because it's your image, it's your voice, it's your IP that's being thrown about. Uh, that's, and so that's a really interesting. And I'm so glad you mentioned the culinary school because I wanted to, to go into that because I don't think I knew. I may have known it at some point, but I don't think I knew you were a, a, a chef and not just a chef, but a, a, an ed, you know, a, I don't know how you say it, but you went to, what's the school you went to? I went to Le Cordon Bleu. Yeah, I mean, so... I didn't know that. I don't know if a lot of people knew that. And now you've kind of parlayed that you've mixed the, the business side of that and the creative side of that into a new Netflix show about that. I would love for you to talk about why you decided to go to the school and then about the new show, because 
to me, this is fascinating. And it, it talks about all the tapestry that is what, it, what makes you up. Well, it's interesting. When I, I went to culinary school, I started in 2007 and I went through to 2008. Um, and it was right, it, again, it was right before the, like, the, you know, financial crash and kind of all that stuff. And so it's in, it sort of before that and then in the midst of it. Um, and I had been fighting to get off of my label that I had been traded to without any, literally, it was like without any conversation. It was like, all of a sudden, you're on Arista the next day. They're like, well, now you're a jive artist. And you're like, what? Hmm. Disaster, because I would have never signed there and they would have never signed me. So it was just a, right. it was like a very bad arranged marriage. Very bad. Um, <laughs> So I'd been fighting for years to get off. And so when I finally got the call um, around 2007, it'd been like four years that I'd been fighting to get off. My lawyer called and he was like, you've been released. I had been fighting for so long that I didn't even, I had no plan for what the hell to do after. <laughs> like, mm. It was just like <laughs> war mentality. Like this is war, go, go, go. And every day was like war strategy. <laughs> like by the time I got the call that you've been, you know, I'd been released. I was kind of just like, oh, well, damn. <laughs> and I'm always panicked. You know, like, really, you get, you freak, you're like, shit, I've been signed since I was 17. I'm now 27. I've never not been signed in my life, good, bad, or indifferent. What the hell am I going to do? And so it was a moment of kind of just like, you know, getting my head right. And then I was sitting in my kitchen one day and I saw a commercial on the television across the room and I was like, culinary school. This was the first time in my adult life that I hadn't been, that I had no like obligations and no one could tell me no, no one could say like, but you have this booked and this is planned and you got to get on this plane. It was just like, I think I'm going to go. And so I called and they were like, we've got a session starting on Monday. It was a Friday. I will never forget. I, of course, again, panic. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? So now I have to like go to school. <laughs> <laughs> the school part of school. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, oh gosh. And then, and then I went and it was one of the best things. I think taking that year off was so empowering for me on so many levels because I was able to, number one, really fun. You know, when you're in music, I think you start to feel like this is it. Like, not in a bad way, but kind of just like this is artists were told so many like this is all I do this because I have to this is all I can do my life my joy my everything like yeah that's cool but like I'm a human being and like I can do other stuff and so I think for me that was really important because I was able to find something that I loved that I was good at but that I really enjoyed and so like that freed me up to go back and make music again without the war and I think that's like a really big difference for me because at the time I was making music in war like it was war cries like it was like this is what we are doing we are fighting and so every song it was just like it was I was so focused and so taking that year year and a half off to be able to just say I'm gonna do something completely different I'm using my hands I'm gonna use a different part of my brain just everything like that sort of changed how I looked at music how I looked at making money in music um and it was just, it was kind of, I had some of the best years of my music career after that, which was kind mm. of, um, it's almost like you took a gap. It's almost like you took a gap year. You'd been yes. a professional student for, for a while. And you took that time to actually find yourself There's a whole movie in that. That's a, as a eat, pray, love situation going on right really there. Was. Let's make it happen. Let's make that happen. And speaking, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get too far into it, but I can just, let me just say this, Janine, I've been around Janine or we'd have, we'd be on the road and we, there'd be a refrigerator at wherever we were staying. And we'd, there'd be a <laughs> thick cotton ball and some Tabasco sauce. 
and she would come up with a five course meal. So y'all probably have some some. Oh, I love it. Get very creative on the road. Too. <laughs> um, I need another thing in a package. Like I need, need something from. With, well, well talk, talk a little bit I about just, this. Talk a little bit about this uh, Netflix show, yes. because it's so interesting. I, I personally am sober now, so I don't uh, do any sort of edibles or anything like that. But the the artistry that I saw on the show, just on um, checking it out a little bit, is beautiful. Tell me, who who was it? Your idea, where you brought into it, and talk a little bit if anybody hasn't seen uh, previews for it. Cool. Yeah. So the show is called Cook with Cannabis, um, and I was approached to do the show. And I was a little trepidatious in the beginning just because I felt like I didn't want to, I just, I don't like goofy stuff. And I just was like, I didn't want to do anything that was like silly or like mockery. I just, I'm not into it. Um, but when I met with the producers and I started to kind of see what their purpose was, what their mission statement was, like what the plan was, I was like, okay, I get this. And then I started to really sort of look at how I could make this important for me. And so I started, you know, I knew a little bit, but I started to kind of look into like, in the black community, what has this meant? What does this do? Um, who's benefited, who's suffered from that angle? And then on the other side of it also, just medicinally and medically, like all of the information and all this stuff. And, you know, it was kind of, it was mind blowing. And it was a quick crash course that I kind of did for myself just to kind of get versed in it. And I used to be a crazy weed smoker back when I started my career. It was sort of my way of like retreating and hiding. Um, and then I stopped smoking because I got vocal surgery. And so that was a disaster. But I stopped smoking for years. And my mom, not that long ago, um, she started having pains and kind of issues. And she has fibromyalgia. And so I started trying to find, you know, all this medication was making her sicker. And I was just like, this is crazy. So I started doing research. And so before even the show had approached me, I was already kind of looking into like the other ways to heal things and kind of fix things. And especially food being a huge part of that. Um, so when they approached me, I just thought, wow, this, this could be something really interesting. And I feel like if we're going to do this this way, I want to make sure that it's done properly. And the only way you can do that is to kind of like, you know, put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. And so I kind of stepped up and I was like, okay, I, I'm down to do this. I want to give it the face that I think it deserves, you know, and I feel like there are still people right now who are incarcerated behind drug charges, you know, behind weed and things like that. And, you know, it's easy to forget living here in sunny California where it's like, you know, like you drive and you're like dispensary here and cafe here and the kind of all these things. And like, it became this big business and there's a real political side to that. Um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to ignore that. I didn't want the faces that represented this new face of weed to be wrong. I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, I hear that. We talk a lot yeah. about that in the startup space. I get a lot of people who come to me uh, wanting white men, a lot of white men come to me saying that they want to, you know, we want to hire people of color. So we want you to invest in us because that's how we're diverse. And I'm like, I, I can't, I'm not going to put my brother's stuff on, you know, blast, but I can just tell you, he has been uh, er, uh, irrevocably, I can't think of the word. Anyway, you know what I'm trying to say, mm -hmm. harm by that, uh, by marijuana possession. Right. And so many have, I mean, that's over the thing that. about it is that it's easy to, like I said, it's easy to just like shine over everything and like, oh, look at this amazing new industry and people are making millions of dollars. Yeah, well, people are still in jail like right now. And like, that is something that affects me very deeply. I am bothered by it. I don't accept it. And so again, like I said, for me, it was really, I, I thought long and hard about what it meant to put my face on something like this. Um, 
and wanting to make sure that it was done justice and that it was done right. And, you know, there are lighthearted moments. It's definitely fun. Yeah, and it, it looks like it. Easy watch. But on the flip side, like, it was really important to me that there were chefs there that were able to represent where they come from, the struggles they had, um, and what they've sort of, you know, the fact that I want them to be able to benefit from this, like, new glossy image that it's been given as well. And so that was, that was important. It was a lot of fun to shoot, though. Like, it was definitely, it was a really fun show. The crew was great. I think the producers did a fantastic job of finding real deal chefs that really knew what they were doing. And I learned so much about cannabis from a, like I said, a medical and an ingredient perspective that I really, I had no idea. And is it available to stream now or is there a launch date? It's out now on Netflix. I would tell the, say the name one more time in, cl- in case anybody missed it. Yep, it's Cooked with Cannabis on Netflix. And awesome. why so you can watch it pretty much anywhere. I'm, I'm checking it out. I know, I know my, my, my good, good friend Diane is checking it out too, who she's in the audience. Yeah. Uh, my mom's probably going to check it out and, and come up with something uh, that is going to surprise me. <laughs> Someone <laughs> asked, I want to make sure I get to a couple of your Q&As, uh, a couple of your questions before we go. Um, someone asked on the, in the same vein, do you have any other culinary plans for the future? Like to, to give out your own, uh, to put out your own um, things? I do. Uh, not so much like in the cannabis space, um, although I dibble and dabble, but really like uh, I have a sauce company called Bounty and Full. And so that's like a, right now it's a range of eight sauces. And we also do olive oil because I bought a farm. And so I bought a farm and I've been farming and I'm loving everything. Wow. We did our first olive oil harvest this year. So that was dope. Um, and so it's liquid gold. We've been selling that. And so that did really well. And I've got like, I have a farm. So right now I'm getting the farm to a place where it's producing enough consistently enough so that I can open a restaurant and sort of like live that life. So I've got cows and goats and chickens and. This is amazing. So this, how long have you had this farm and where, what, what city or, I mean, what state is it in? We'll say. It's in California. I'm in California, Southern California. And um, I've been, well, I was looking forever and I finally found it. We moved here last year so it's like a year now um and we just and the crazy thing is is that like with everything i was on tour when all of this sort of like corona stuff started kicking off mm. um saw that it was in march right you had like a yeah. anniversary tour going it was on. my yes it was my 20 year anniversary of Kaleidos- no, i would have been there i would have been there it was, i mean it's it's a mask <laughs> it kind of just it cat it was catastrophic it ruined everything but that being said it gave me time that i didn't think i had to be here and to learn the land and to kind of get a whole other business going. So like, that's been pretty dope. It's like, you know, we're, we're farmers now and it's great. Cause like, it's a business and it's running and it's working and it's a whole new thing that I'm learning. So yeah. I learned how to harvest olives for the first time this year and, you know, how to press them and how to make olive oil and what the olive oil market is like. And so it's kind of, it's interesting. And for, for our listeners in the future here, what I want to also point out is that I often talk about multiple income streams. What Kalise is talking about the, throughout this entire conversation, but not dropping the mic like she, she could be, is that she has multiple streams that she's thinking about in case of emergency, you know, different things that um, this, this farm, you, olive oil, the, the appearances that you make, not just one lane, not just the one thing yeah. that people know you about. So that's yeah, really yeah. important. I want to um, wrap up, uh, wrap up, and I, there's a, a more personal question in the q and I'm going to ask it. Um, what is your advice when it comes to dealing with people dredging up pa- your past 
that may not be positive that you would want? How do you decide how much of your life to share with the public? I'm extremely private. Um, I mean, and I wasn't always, I think, you know, I got married and, and like everybody knew it and, you know, people decide if they love the couple and it becomes this whole thing and they think they own you. And, you know, I was young and deranged. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As a result though, I'm learning that, you know, from all of that, I learned this, I don't care what nobody says, this is a business and it is nothing more and nothing less. Um, I am fearful for people who are so open. The thing is, is that like, you know, like I said, I'm 40. So when I started, it was a totally different era. I came, I'm like a dinosaur in music right now. And so we started and it was like, artists were mysterious. There was like yeah. this sex appeal about it. You know, we weren't showing you us on the toilet and in the kitchen and in our pajamas. Like it wasn't like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, if you caught me, it was cause you came to a show or we were doing a, a big publication. It, it was a very different thing. And so you were able to control a bit of your life because it is spiraling regardless. Mm. So right now, you know, in the climate that we're in right now where everything is social media and everything is in your face and people, the more one person shows, the more you have to show to stay viable and all these things. Honestly, it's again, it's those choices you have to make every day. And just when you thought you've made them all and you're, you're like, okay, I'm here. I've done it. I know who I am. I'm happy. I'm content. Instagram comes, TikTok comes, all these things come. And it's like, are you going to do a dance? No, I'm not. And you know why? Because like, <laughs> you're not going to do that floss dance. It's just not who I am. It's like, I feel like I have to be able to maintain my sanity and I know how I can do that. And it's like, when I'm working, I am working and I will work my ass off and I will do everything I need to do to make sure that my job was done properly. But honey, when I say I'm, it's time to clock out, uh, bye-bye. Like I'm out. Like I don't feel guilty. I don't feel bad. And so as far as like my private life goes, people still bring up stuff that happened 10, 15 years ago. They are bored. Like, (laughs) I can't I'm like, I don't even know what to tell you. I don't even remember. I'm like, sorry can't do this with you, not doing it. I don't show my children. Um, I show parts of my farm because I'm really excited and because it is part of the business, but it's very select. I'm very, it's like you could, people who know me know like, oh, she's working. Cause I'm, this is my work. This is the work of the farm I'm going to show you. And then I'm gonna go home and you're never gonna see me until I put it back on <laughs> and I'll work. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's the control that you have to take right now. Um, because we, who knows where this is all gonna go. And you know, talking about like, revenue and just sort of like having sources of revenue. It's what I learned midway in my career was that if I have to show up, then this is not, it doesn't matter how much money I'm showing up for. It don't matter. And that's the real deal is that when I realize like the only time I make money is if I'm there, the hell, Mm. (laughs) that's a disaster. That cannot be. I'm exhausted. Like I said, I'm 40. If I'm still touring, I'm touring because I want to. And it's because I had to learn that like, this is not sustainable and it's not scalable if the only time I make money is if I'm there. Like if I'm there with sequins and feathers, that's not really making, I don't care how much the check is. It's the fact that like, how do we make this so that I can make money and my kids can make money when I'm dead and in the grave. It's not me freaking shaking my ass all day and some feathers. It's not gonna work. This is the mentality of so many legacy uh, uh, families. This is why there is legacy wealth and certain groups and not in others, because what you just, I mean, if any, this entire conversation has been gem after gem, but if you take nothing else from that, 
from this conversation. That to me is so valuable to understand that. You talked about right before that, you talked about boundaries, which is amazing to talk about. And then you talked about ways of, of scaling how you generate income. Which means then that you have to be able, you have to, that's where you step out of your artistry. And like, that's where you, and you have to. I used to be so precious about my art to a fault. And I can say that I'm proud of the work that I did because I never compromised, but I didn't make what I could have made on it because I was too precious. And so there's a fine line between saying, okay, this is my art and I don't give a damn what nobody says. Now let's take this and how do we now print this? How do we now make this so that we can give a little bit of it and so everyone understands where you're coming from that I'm not trying to sell my art. I'm selling you the essence of something. I'm selling you an idea, a thought, an inspiration. My art is not, it can't really, it's in my body. It can't really be for sale that way, right? And so you have to, you have to come to an understanding that like, and I had to do that with myself. I had to be like, okay, shake it off. Cause like you're tripping. Cause I was like, I don't want to do this. I'm not doing that. That's not cool. That's not cute. I'm not going to catch me out there doing that. They're like, okay, then you're going to be broke. And I was like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> so, yeah. like, that's not an option either, you know? So like, but it, it's something too, that when you talk about like different groups, one of the, and this is, I'll leave this with, I'll leave this with this. When I started to think about what wealth really meant, right? And like, again, because I was making so much money, I was easily spending so much money. So like, it didn't matter because I knew I could make it back. You become, you get to that point where like, ah, oh, all right, I'll make more. It ain't a big deal. And because I did make it back, you don't really think about it, right? You can make it back when you're 27, 30, 35. There becomes a point where you're like, yo, this is crazy. They want me to go where? Fly how far? What? <laughs> like, I don't want to go, <laughs> you know? And if I go, I should go because I want to, not because I freaking didn't make the investments or didn't make the plans that I needed to when I should have when the money was rolling in. So what I started to think about was, and this is so funny, there was a show, I don't think anybody even remembers, but there was a show before the Jeffersons where he had like his little shop like on his land. And then the Jeffersons came out and it was like moving on up and he's right. in an apartment. And it was funny, it always struck me because my mom used to always be like, see? <laughs> like, she's like, see, that's how they get us. How is the apartment better than the land? Mm. And it's I mean, like- just fall out, give me a moment, I'm gonna fall out and just- Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But think about it, right? That's what they did to our entire community. Oh. Women, when I started looking at farming, right, when I realized that most of the farmers, the first of all, it was like 30% of the world's farmers and harvesters are women. You don't know. When you think of a farmer, do you ever think of a brown woman? Of any woman at all? You don't. Do you think of brown people? No. Why? Because it was taken from us. Most of our, in the 1920s, most of our, for well, at least 20 to 30% of America's farms were owned by black families we gave all that up for an apartment. And that to me, when I figured that out, I was like, oh my God, it doesn't matter how many records I sell or how many times I get on stage and how many millions I make, if I can't leave my kids some land with some stuff to grow so that they can actually control their existence, then I've done nothing. And that's for me, that's what changed everything. I just like to call a time of death. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's so true though. Like it's, so, they did, that's what happened. That's what happened. It's crazy. And it's like, we've all been duped into thinking about this dollar when really looking at, okay, what is the, if the dollar can continually change and if the value of the dollar can change, every time you travel, I'm constantly reminded when they change from the lira and the freaking uh, kroner and all this stuff to the euro, I was like, oh, hold on, wait a minute. What in the hell? 
And then all of a sudden, like your dollar is changing and today it's worth this and tomorrow it's, I'm like, okay, hold on a second. This is freaking crazy. So I'm busting my ass out here. You're going to tell me today it's not worth what it was before? This is ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah. okay. So land and thinking about how like wealth, that's how our communities had wealth before. And we lost it because we gave all of that up. That's the one thing God's not making any more of is land. So get as much as you can. I'm like, get all of it. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I am more grateful than I can tell you uh, for, for that and for the entire hour that you've given us. Thank you. I know people in the chat are, are their minds are blown. Everybody's appreciative. Uh, uh, listen to the 1619 podcast to hear more uh, about things that blow your mind like this. And man, I tell you what, um, Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna come back. I'm, I'm coming back into full body mode here. I, I, I was you saw you see me fade like I started fading like the, like the gif. Woo okay, I think I need to. I have a whole. You're gonna see me in a year with all kinds of property, and you say, "Well, how did you get all that property?" Well, and, and, and you'll see me wonderful, and you'll see me with a lot of. I was always gonna do the property, but now you're gonna see me in like so, so suspenders and. Uh, <laughs> yes. you know, or you're gonna yes, see me you know. like yes yes <laughs> how do you make the land work for you yes i love it i love it i want to i want to thank you i want to thank janine and chacho for being here to help out janine for giving us your time i know i kept you i kept you way over than i was supposed to but <laughs> no i'm so grateful this chat was incredible i'm like just yeah so so grateful to be a part of this awesome it's so good to meet you too I'll make sure y'all connect and thank you so much, Khalees. Everybody is, uh, thank you everybody for being here too. And anyone who is listening uh, now or in the future, very appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right, so that we, we just locked that up. We're gonna edit that, send that out. We're still broadcasting, but I just wanted to show everybody how we do this, how we, how we create this behind the scenes. Uh, and Khalees, I will be in touch with you. I appreciate everything Absolutely. that you've done here um, and, and what you've opened our minds up to today. Really, Thank you so much, babe. Appreciate it. All right, everybody. See you later.